Hello, and welcome to the Granta Podcast. Today, we're delighted to bring you an interview with one of our best of young British novelists for Naomi Alderman. Alderman is the author of three novels, Disobedience, The Lessons, and The Liar's Gospel. She grew up an Orthodox Jew, but gave it up after a series of increasingly irritable arguments. She writes and designs computer games and is co-creator of Zombies Run, the best-selling iPhone fitness game and audio adventure. She is currently working on her fourth novel. Soon and In Our Days, which appears in Granta 123, is a new story. Here, she talks to deputy editor Ella Olfrey about her engagement with the world around her and the thrill of writing to genres. Naomi, thank you very much for joining us. Hi. Hello, it's lovely to be here. Um, I want to start off the conversation just picking up on a story that you, you were telling us. We're surrounded by, by copies of Granta in this room and, and different books that our company has published. And um, you were discussing this uh, this idea, we were discussing the idea of being a book hoarder. Oh, Tell yes. us about what started that off. Okay, so, uh, yes, as I was saying, I had... I had a rather terrible formative experience as a 16-year-old where I won um, Dylan's, the, 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 of blessed memory, Dylan's, the bookshop, uh, used to run a competition called um, uh, Young Reader of the Year. And I won this competition when I was 16. Uh, and in fact, I think Catelyn Moran had won it a couple of years before me. Um, and uh, the, what, what a part of the prize was, they gave you a huge bag and said just go around the shop and take anything you want and I think I've never quite lost the feeling that I ought to be able to just go into a bookshop and take anything I want. Who were the writers who you filled that bag with? Okay I'm going to try and remember. Uh, I know that there was some Terry Pratchett in there, Uh, there was a P.D. James, that was my first ever P.D. James. Um, I think... I think there were some graphic novels because you know those are quite expensive for volume. So if you're if you're going to kind of go for most bang for your buck graphic novels, I think I had Mouse in there. I, think I was going to yeah. ask if you had Mouse because that would have been the time. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I did. Um, oh, I had a lot of John Buchan. Don't ask me why. I wouldn't say that I love John Buchan really anymore, but at the time I really liked him. Um, Mm, That's already quite. Oh, a good Joyce Grenfell. Joyce Grenfell. I had Joyce Grenfell's uh, uh, letters and diaries. She was actually when I was when I was a teenager, and I know this makes me sound like an old fogey, but when I was a teenager, she was a big influence. I really liked her work. She was so funny and also psychologically acute, and she was a writer. She wrote about children in a very funny way, but not for children. And is that because even as a young reader, you were you reading beyond beyond your years? Were your peers reading the same kind of thing? Oh, I don't think anybody that I knew was reading the same kind of thing. I was, I, I, I was not very naturally a child. I, I, I always had a feeling that things would get better once I got to about thirty, and indeed they did. I was not very good at being a child, and I wasn't very good at being a teenager. What changed? Was it just age or agency? Or? I think it's just you're allowed to be as old farty as I am when you're past 30 I mean maybe you are now like if you're in your early 20s and you're kind of a hipster and and you carry the sort of messenger bags and all that. maybe you're allowed to be somebody who as I did loved 1960s radio I had cassettes of uh, Beyond Our Ken and Round the Horn which I had these, these are 1960s 
radio comedy, which I'd recorded from the radio. I used to listen to them over and over again. Uh, and they didn't, they didn't repeat them very often, but I loved them. So I would, I would listen to them very, very frequently. And everybody else thought I was weird, and I was weird. <laughs> but, but now it's okay, I'm just eccentric. I I loved the the collection of of books that you mentioned with the with the science fiction the Terry Pratchett and the graphic novels and John Buchan. I can see all of that coming together because in your writing and in the books that you've written, you move from one thing to the other, and there's a very clear sense that one is reading the same writer, but your concerns and your style change quite a lot and you're involved in, in other things sort of you know very much with sort of digital technology do you always know when a story comes to you what form it's going to take mostly mostly I think I have a sense very early um, that that an idea is long enough to sustain a novel or that it's just right for a short story or that it's it needs some more digital element to it some more interactive element it is true and it's funny to have started by talking about that Dylan thing because I haven't talked about it for years. Um, and, but, but I remember that was really when I was starting to think of myself as a writer mm. and um, entering that competition was really part of thinking of myself as a writer. And at that stage, I remember thinking, well, what kind of books am I going to write? Because I like reading all sorts of different things. And I think I've probably got a proper murder mystery in me at some point <laughs> because I love those things. I love a good puzzle, you know. Um, so yeah, I, I remember wondering about that and thinking, is this all? Is this all right? Is it allowed? But but maybe it is. Maybe it's allowed if you're a literary fiction writer, and then you're allowed to do whatever. Whatever you want, including an iPhone app about zombies. Including an iPhone app about zombies. But you know, in case anybody thinks that it's 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 not serious, let's just say it's a, it's a fitness app, which encourages you to go out in the real world, running and walking, and. Margaret Atwood has recorded a guest episode for us. <laughs> That's wonderful. I know we've discussed this before, and one of the things that really struck me was your overriding concern to me seemed to be about keeping that narrative coherent and working out ways to allow the reader to interact with the narrative and the difficulties inherent within that. Do you think that any novelists working now should be concerned about those kind of things, about those digital platforms? I would never, ever say to anyone that they must be involved in it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if it doesn't speak to you, for God's sake, don't try. You know, I, in, in the same way, I'm not a poet. I just know that I'm not a poet. And there are poets whose who's writing I love, um, but I don't, I don't have that in me. And that's okay. You know, I don't have to do that. Um, and if, you were a writer, if you're a writer who hates watching the television, you shouldn't try to write some TV because, you know, in the same way, you know, occasionally I've had a a student, a creative writing student, who really wants to write a novel, and when I say to her, let's say her, um, well, what do you love to read? She would go, oh, I don't really like reading novels. And you go, well, then why are you doing this? Because the only way that you have an understanding of the form is by engaging with it. So if you're a writer who's very engaged with the digital world, who's interested in it, absolutely, I would love to talk to you, and you should come and like send me an email and write me something for my zombie game. Uh, and in general, be involved in what's going on. If you're a writer who prefers the ivory tower or just prefers novels, then I think that's always going to be a place for that. It's really interesting that you mentioned poetry first, because I, I love the idea that you are seeing that 
different platform in the same way as other genres that are still considered really literary or mm. the forms that are considered really literary. And so, to a certain extent, you're not buying into the whole idea of high or low culture. No, I really don't buy into it. I mean, I know it exists, and it's very important to be able to modulate what what, what I do. I wouldn't... I, w- I don't want to let go of either side of it, and I enjoy being playfully in between the two. Mm. Um, but yes, if you had asked people at the end of the 19th century whether Dickens was high culture, they would have said, well, he was a great writer, but, you know, he's very popular. Mm. I mean, we, there were people waiting on the docks for Little Dorrit to arrive from, from, from the UK in, in, in America, you know, desperate for it in a kind of Justin Bieber screaming, we must have the new episode of Little Dorrit way. Uh, so how is that not popular culture? But, of course, Dickens is a great writer. So we can apply the same um, criteria to, let's say, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I happen to love above all things, as we can apply to, let's say, the work of A.S. Byatt, who I also love. Um, And we can say, well, is the characterisation good? You know, is there a subtle treatment of themes? Uh, Is there a kind of modulated plotting? Is it not in a straight line and yet also not at certain points too melodramatic? Let's talk about subtlety. Let's talk about the ways in which different characters and themes interact. We can talk about all of those things, in all forms of culture. I mean, there's no reason that TV would not be able to do that or that novels always would, you know, or that, I, I mean, there's there's lowbrow poetry. There is lowbrow poetry. We've all seen inside greeting cards. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yes, there are highbrow computer games. There really are. If anybody wants to know one, I would highly recommend a game for PlayStation 3 called Journey, which is about the most poetic a computer game I've ever seen. It's magnificent. I, I do love that idea and I, I think that um, what's, what's, you know, as, as I was saying earlier, that that emphasis of always coming back to story and as you as you were saying now that, you know, looking to see is there good characterization, is there good development of the plot a- across all of those genres and it seems to me something that you certainly apply in your own writing the story soon and in our days that we feature in in the best of young british novelists issue is hilarious i am not always great with comic writing but i laugh each and every time even when i'm checking for um comma splices i was laughing with this piece and then at the same time as realizing that you're having great fun with with the topic that's actually quite serious mm. You also did your own translations of the Torah in this. And I think, for me, that really um, sort of epitomizes how I feel about your work, that there is, even where there's a lightness to it, underneath there's a great seriousness. And mm. I, I wonder which comes first. And, and is that a, a true characterization? I, I, think, I think that's absolutely right. I have conversations with other novelists who write purely from the imagination and doesn't you know I admire that but I really love to be very grounded in what I write to know that whatever it is that I've done my homework um, I think it's I think literary fiction let me say this and then other people can disagree with me but I think literary fiction is in some sense always a response to trauma I suspect that writers who are driven to work maybe all writers maybe uh have either been driven to express something that they felt they weren't at some point able to express or to um distract themselves 
from some part of life which at some point was unbearable. I think that's where that storytelling or story involvement impulse comes from when you're when you're young. Um, I I grew up an Orthodox Jew. <laughs> this this is well recorded. Uh, there's there's a part of that growing up which is um, has a, has an element of gaslighting to it. By gaslighting, there's there's a uh, uh, there's a movie of the 1940s called Gaslight, in which a husband is trying to murder his wife, but also to drive her subtly bonkers. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things he does is turn the, li the lights down and then say, "No, no, no! It's perfectly bright in here. What are you talking about?" So there's that. That particular thing that happens when somebody denies what it is that you kn you know happened, you know that something has gone wrong, but people tell you no, 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 it's nothing to be troubled about. Sorry, this is a very long answer to your no, question. No, it's a good but, answer. Um, so I think there's something there's something in Orthodox Judaism where not only is it misogynist, apart from many other things. Uh, but there are also so many ways of explaining away the misogyny and so many ways of saying, well, this isn't really important. And this, you know, you've misunderstood this. You've misunderstood it. When we say this blessing where the boys say, thank you, God, for not making me a woman, you've misunderstood the context of that if you're offended by it. You know, this is your fault, really, for not properly appreciating it. So this is a very roundabout way of saying that it's always been important for me to gather that kind of evidence and to know that I had the evidence to say, look, this is why I think this is going on. This is why this seems this way to me. I have my full textual evidence. So there's a kind of seriousness that goes along with that. Um, I really admire writers who write from a place of full imagination. Uh, but for me, I like to start off with the translations directly from the Torah where I can go, Yes, here it is. Now I can have my flight of fancy because I know that there's something real and documentable at the core. I hope that makes some kind of sense. Mm, it makes absolute sense. I, I'm, I'm really struck about what you're saying about that res response to trauma and that need to express or distract. I think that in some ways it, it may apply to sort of readers of literary fiction as well mm. as the writers. But specifically speaking about the writing of it, um, in Disobedience, for example, there's a lot of love and generosity in how you write about the, the Orthodox community that your protagonist comes back to. You know, they don't see it. No. You know, you know non-Jewish people see love and generosity. The Orthodox Jewish people go, why is this book so hateful? That's really interesting, because I think that's the thing that struck me. Besides the fact that I was obsessed with um, the need to have um, kosher cookware in my house <laughs> having read that I I was really struck by that and and so well did you feel yourself that as you were writing did you feel you were writing from a space of love and generosity or or was that were you able to examine that in the writing of I I tried to be as honest as I could be mm -hmm. and the honest truth is I wouldn't have stayed so long if there hadn't been many good things in it um and certainly for me one of one of the great things, which I don't know if I if I got across in that book, is that it's a place where one can talk seriously about, let's say, the meaning of life, and what the right way is to live, and about the need for charity and the way that one should approach sex, and one can have proper serious conversations about that in that in that religious context, which it's hard to find a space for 
in the outside world. So, you know, I think Alain de Botton is trying it with the School of Life, but I, I don't know if that... It, it's, it doesn't have that feeling of a community. Mm. And actually, a community of people really engaging with those questions. Now, they have some very dogmatic answers to those questions, but at the same time, I miss being able to... Yeah, talk about. I suppose. I suppose what I'm saying, Ella, is I'm quite. I really am quite a serious person, and I'm trying to conceal it by all these jokes. <laughs> <laughs> we love the jokes. <laughs> I know it just it just lightens it all a bit. Um, th- this this idea of coming from a tradition where conversation, engagement, and intellectual non-embarrassment about it, an intellectual life or concerns is, and it's it's rather delightful. Does how. What does that bring to you as a teacher? You've recently been appointed professor of creative writing at, at Basketball University, and, and you mentioned your, your students earlier on. Um, tell me about being a teacher as well as a writer. I didn't expect to love it as much as I do. Um, I found... Both my parents are teachers. My, my mother taught art for about... 30 years and I used to go and hang out in her art class and talk to her students who were all ultra-orthodox girls. So this was a very interesting window into a different world. And my father for many years was pro-vice-chancellor at London University and he still holds a few emeritus professorships. Um, and I suppose, so I suppose it's kind of one would have expected that I would love teaching. Um, to start off with, when I first started teaching, because it's one of those things that creative writers, that's always available to you. Once you publish a novel and people are interested in hearing what you have to say about writing novels. Uh, I remember my first workshop, I was absolutely terrified and I produced about six times as much material and exercises as we had time to get through. Um, and these days, having done it more, I'm able, I hope, to channel some wonderful teachers who I've had and just turn, turn it into a conversation and to engage with what people are interested in finding out about. Um, I really love teaching a class where uh, I spend basically the whole class going around and finding out what people are interested in and and responding to that and setting exercises purely off the basis of, you know, what people in the group are interested in talking about. And I know that there's a sort of snobbishness about teaching creative writing. People love to say, oh, it can't be taught. And in a sense, it can't be taught. But you, if you're good, you can be taught to be better. Are you teaching creative writing or teaching thinking? Yeah, that's a very good question. I hope, I hope both. I think even if you're not going to be a published novelist, which most of most creative writing students are not, um, you can still gain a lot. I think from that those deep exercises in empathy. I mean, it might be better for all of us if everybody had to do that let's say put yourself into the shoes of somebody else mm. let's really try to think out th- think ourselves into somebody else's head look out through their eyes see how the world looks and i had a fantastic experience studying um for my masters in in, in creative writing at, at east anglia uh oh about 10 years ago now um i arrived there from i had been working at a law firm <laughs> i know <laughs> And I arrived there, battered from the shores of the law, just sort of arrived arrived in in this in this safe harbour of a place where people wanted to talk about books and think about books. And so I think it's I think it's very important when teaching not to tell people, Oh, you'll definitely be published. Very important. But 
also it might happen <laughs> and even if it doesn't there are so many things to gain and to learn and it can be a real sea change in somebody's life I think a year spent really delving deeply not only into reading literature but also in time to create it I mean it makes you a better reader once you've once you've tried and certainly I first tried to write a novel when I was 15 and, and I think probably my reading was never the same afterwards just to go you suddenly go oh how did they do this which is which is wonderful having said that I would never want to study music in that way I really like to have music as something that I just absorb without having any idea how they've done it do you, are your music tastes as eclectic as your um oh yes <laughs> <laughs> give me some idea um I, I I I'm a bit of a folk fan um I really like Seth Lakeman and Jim Moray and Eliza Carthy and uh, Bellowhead uh, and, and, you know, going back a bit, the Watersons. But I also really like Tayo Cruz and Robin with a Y. <laughs> I really... The, th the, thing, the thing that I, I properly can't bear is music... I want to say dreary music. And that's that's the only way that I can describe it. Music which 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 doesn't have that kind of vibrancy to it. I want I want someone who's something that has life. Yeah, something that has life. I mean, whilst I admire Adele tremendously as a human being, that song, the the someone like you, which is on in every restaurant in the country whilst everybody's eating, you just I just want to go no. Actually, a a music in restaurants, unless it is some nice um, baroque. Oh, I, I love love Bach, love Bach. Um, but you know that sort of nice baroque, which really has no emotional content. It's 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 form. It's it's experiments and and puzzles and mathematical, and I love it for that. But why why would you play that Adele song in every restaurant in Britain? Why would you want us all to be feeling those feelings whilst eating? No, I, mean, I love this sort of deep engagement in in, in all kinds of culture. And it makes me wonder how difficult... Is it difficult to take yourself away and spend the time, for example, thinking about your last novel, The Liar's Gospel, with with your um, being grounded in, in Torah and you know doing your own translations, it seems to me that must have been a huge task, not just of the imagination, because the characters in there are astounding, even Thank though they're, they're people who we all know from, from reading the Bible and Sunday school classes and all of those things... But I just wonder, can you tell me a little bit about how, how you remove yourself from all of these other interests in order to produce a work like that? I would never want to remove myself for a whole day. I know this is... Uh, actually, this is something that I've talked about with Margaret Atwood. Am I allowed to say that? Yes. <laughs> um, because we were talking about that fantasy that people have about writing, that it is about removing yourself from the world. And... Uh, Margaret said to me that she had always thought that maybe one day she would spend a year in a library just writing. I mean, you know, she's Margaret Atwood. If, if she were to say to any library in the world, I would like to come and spend a year writing, they would instantly, you know, a room would be found. And, and this, but, but she never has done. And, and I thought about why that was, and we talked about it a bit. And I, th I think the answer is she's so engaged in the world. Why would you not... If you're if you're able to influence the world, if you're at a certain point able to have your views and and your thinking be important, why would you want to take yourself away from the world? The world is the thing, the world is it. So, 
it's it's very joyful to me to turn off my internet for three hours instantly i don't understand these people who need this thing this sort of software to do it um you just unplug the router <laughs> um and, and and that's that's quite good yeah i love i love unplugging the router three hours is perfect or going to um a cafe without my laptop or and you know just taking or british library i spent many a happy hour in the british library with my josephus sitting there just reading through making notes i've got a little notebook full of notes from this and three hours is perfect three hours is the same amount of time as an exam it feels like that's the right amount of time and after three hours you, basically you're tired anyway your brain is tired of that activity and then you might as well go and rejoin the world interesting things would have happened and then you can say things about them and be involved in that as well i think the world is the thing is is a wonderful i'm, I'm going to remember that that's brilliant i if if we if we talk a little bit about margaret atwood you're involved in a mentorship program mm. And it seems a perfect matching to me. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and how it's going? Yeah, so uh, Rolex run, run this scheme where uh, every two years they they find sort of five, no, six acknowledged world geniuses in various arts disciplines. So they, they usually do um, fine art, music, literature, uh, theatre, cinema and dance. And they find somebody appropriate to pair them up with. So you have to be invited to apply. I actually had a call um, towards the end of 2011 from uh, somebody that I know professionally. I'm not allowed to say who it is mm -hmm. because these spotters have to be kept very secret, otherwise they'd be inundated. Um, and, and, and this person said to me, well, I, I know that you're a bit advanced in your career, really, for a mentorship, pro but, but I think this is somebody... Would, would you trust me to put you forward? And, I, and this is somebody that I absolutely trust, and I just said, yes, definitely. If, if you think it was somebody that I would enjoy working with and and this person said to me oh yes and in at that at, at, in that instant i had margaret atwood's name in my head oh how wonderful <laughs> <laughs> i thought i thought if it's margaret atwood then absolutely i'm gonna do it you know or i'm gonna apply for it so then there's a whole sort of rigmarole you have to write them a couple of essays about your themes and goals and dreams and hopes and your artistic beliefs and you know what you're planning to do with the next 20 years of your life um and to write about what you would hope to accomplish in the year and, and, and the project that you're working on. Um, and then out of that, I, I believe they pick either, they invite either 25 or 50 people to apply and then out of that they pick four people to go and meet, in this case, Margaret Atwood. Last year, last time, the film mentor was Martin Scorsese. So oh, wow. Yeah, they get, they, I mean, it's just, it's an amazing roster of people. Um, so then I was flown out last February to Toronto to meet Margaret. Um, there were four of us. Each of us had an hour to talk to her. It was really fun talking to her, which I didn't really know what to expect. And what happened was that we made each other laugh. Uh, and it's not for me to say why she picked me. Uh, I think she's she's spoken about it. And I, th I think she would say primarily because she was impressed by my novels. Um, and I, And... But I think also we have a similar sense of humour and a similar, maybe eclectic mind. And I'm thinking of the woman who invents a zombie app and the woman who invents a, a long-distance signing pen. <laughs> yes. It seems a, a perfectly... Has, has it started... Do, do you feel that it's going to have an effect on, on, your, yes. on your work yes. going forward? Yes, it's, it's, it's a very interesting thing because um, the, the book that I'm working on now, which I don't want to say masses about, but essentially I've come to the conclusion I've just bitten the bullet and said it is 
really, it's a 1970s, 1980s feminist science fiction novel of the kind... <laughs> people don't seem to be writing those anymore, but I love them. And I love the novels of Marion Zimmer Bradley and Ursula Le Guin and Marge Piercy. And who is writing this now? Yeah. Me is who's writing it now. So <laughs> having loved those books, I've just... That's what I'm working on. So... And, and I'm perfectly well aware that working with Margaret Atwood, I'm working with the author of the greatest of all of those books, The Handmaid's Tale. So it's an interesting process because I'm learning so much from being around her and I desperately do not want to end up rewriting her book uh, because I think that would be a disservice to both of us, you know. I sort of feel there's a little danger of that. Naomi, <laughs> speaking about this, this sort of relationship you have now um take us back a little bit and tell me about that that first english teacher or or <laughs> librarian who um pointed you in the right direction you want you want an inspiration you see i have a different kind of story to this well go right ahead <laughs> my story is that the head of english at my posh girls school told me that i would never be a good writer because um i was an orthodox jew and this meant that I was doing a lot of my reading on Saturdays when I couldn't write. And her view was that uh, this, this would always impede me as a writer, not being able to write at the same time that I was reading. Um, which I was then and am now quite cross about. But I think being cross about something like that is a really good kind of impetus. It's very good to have something to kick against and, and to go, I mean, really? The, the truth is, um, I'm very motivated by wanting to show everyone. Just that kind of, I'll show them all. Um, and, and so I've, I've encountering a particular kind of difficulty now that everybody seems to think my work is great. <laughs> because, <laughs> because now I'm going, oh, oh, everybody's sort of on my side now. How do I deal with this? Um, I mean, I am dealing with it. It's all right. I don't need anybody to start criticising me and telling me that I'm a terrible writer but um, uh, yeah I think in the same way that it, it's good to have the orthodox Judaism to, to kick against and to go this, these are all the things that I disagree with having said that I did love my Latin teacher who uh, was always encouraging and always seemed to feel that I would do something splendid uh, in fact, I just had a card from her a few days ago congratulating me on the new novel. I've had cards from my math teacher and my old headmistress, but not from the head of English. Not the head of English. <laughs> <laughs> we, we may send her a copy of the issue. Naomi, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's been thank an absolute you. delight. Now I'm going to go and rummage through your bookshelves here. With <laughs> <laughs> a big bag. Thanks for listening to the Granta Podcast, available for free download on iTunes, SoundCloud, and selected British Airways flights. To subscribe to Granta, please visit our website, granta.com slash subscribe.